It could be said that the ghost of crises past haunts the corridors of power where migration policies take shape. Since the 2015 migrant crisis, restrictive measures, tougher policy interventions and heightened securitization have become the hallmarks of border controls along the Mediterranean. As new research from the Global Initiative shows, it would appear that the steps taken have had the desired effect. Far fewer migrants are attempting to reach Europe via Mediterranean migration routes. But a closer look at shifting dynamics reveals the complex interplay of cause and effect. In this week's episode of Africa and the Global Illicit Economy with the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, we're in North Africa covering migrant trends across the Mediterranean. I'm your host, Lindim Tongana. Historically, migrants have used three main routes to travel from North Africa to Europe through the Mediterranean Sea. The western route connects Morocco to Spain, the central links Libya to Malta and Italy, while the eastern route bridges Turkey and Greece. According to GI research, the biggest shift has occurred within the central Mediterranean route. Areza Malakuti is a senior fellow at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Part of the reason why we conducted this study was because there has been a lot of shifting around between those routes and within those routes, and specifically in terms of the departure points from North Africa towards Europe. This has mostly happened in attempts to evade controls and authorities. But the biggest shift has occurred within the central Mediterranean route, where Libya used to be the main departure point towards Italy and increased quite significantly between 2012 and 2017. For example, in 2012, it was just under 40% of all of the boats that arrived in Italy that had departed from Libya. While it wasn't a majority, Libya did represent the largest share compared to the other departure countries. But in 2013, Libya's share increased to 63%. In 2014, it increased to 83%. In 2015 to 89, and by 2017, 91% of boats that arrived in Italy had departed from Libya. But since then, it has been decreasing. And by the end of 2019, it was only 38%. What do you attribute these significant changes to? So, quite a few policy interventions were uh, instigated in Libya and in the central Mediterranean over the past few years, one of which is an MOU that was signed between Libya and Italy in 2017. And in a nutshell, that MOU involved incentives for the government of national accord in Libya and certain tribal groups in the south of the country to engage in greater counter-smuggling work, to become partners with the international community to counter smuggling into, through, and from Libya. And of course, what this did was it meant that a number of tribal groups and armed groups and militia groups who had been involved in migrant smuggling in the past 
had now agreed to become partners with European countries or third countries to help them stop smuggling. And that, of course, meant that the smuggling didn't stop necessarily, but it did become more clandestine because it was being monitored more highly. And so, in effect, what that meant was that those journeys became more dangerous and more difficult for migrants trying to move through Libya. It didn't actually stop the movements. There was also a controversial code of conduct introduced for NGO-run search and rescue ships in the Mediterranean, which led to the majority of them having to shut down their operations, which in effect meant the majority of migrants were being picked up by the Libyan Coast Guard and returned to Libya. And that is, of course, controversial because we know that migrants are detained in Libya in extremely inhumane conditions. And so returning migrants to Libya is effectively returning them to that detention system. We did find that the, let's say, combined effect of all of this was that by 2018, the departures from Libya had dropped quite significantly. So we had a total of 12,977 migrants arriving irregularly in Italy on boats that had departed the Libyan coast in 2018. That's compared to 108,000 in 2017. So that's a huge drop. But we also found that arrivals into Libya from Niger and Sudan had also decreased significantly as a result of the counter-smuggling and border security initiatives in those countries. Looking specifically at Niger now, how did the anti-smuggling law introduced in that country affect movement in the region? So in 2015, the Nigerian government, with the support of uh, the European Union, did pass a law that allowed them to counter smuggling of migrants, let's say, more effectively. So it led to arrests of smugglers. It led to vehicles being confiscated, the vehicles of smugglers. It led to increased border security in that northern border of Niger, just before the Libyan border. And so effectively what happened was that, you know, the northern Niger, as we know, and Agadez particularly, which is the last town in the Sahara before the Libyan border, had been real areas of, let's say, human mobility. And this was an area of great mobility for a very long time, for decades and generations. And effectively what happened was that it became very difficult to move through that area as a result of this law. And so what we saw instead was that migrants and smugglers started to reroute. And instead of trying to access Libya through that northern border, routes began from Zinder and Tawa in Niger, which are further south. And basically they kept towards the borders, the Algerian border and the Chadian border, so as to avoid the authorities in the center. And basically, smugglers had no clear entry or exit points over the border towards Libya anymore. They had to basically move around trying to find openings where there were no authorities. Apart from a reduction in irregular migration to Europe, what are the consequences has this increased securitization had on migration. What we have seen over and over again in the Mediterranean is that any time we try and stop migrants and smugglers in a particular area, they simply reroute. And that these routes are very dynamic, as are the smugglers, and we're not able to stop them. 
We are only able to push them around. And when we have greater controls and greater arrests and greater surveillance, it also means that the smugglers and the migrants go deeper underground so as to avoid being apprehended. And that makes the journeys more risky for them as well. Do you think the decrease in migrant arrivals in Europe as a result of these policy interventions is likely to continue? It's difficult to say at this point because I don't believe that the number of migrants who are trying to reach Europe has dropped that significantly. I think that it's just the number that have actually succeeded in their journeys that has dropped. And I believe that's the case because when you are in the Sahel or in North Africa, you find that the number of migrants attempting these journeys is still very high. And the only reason why they're not making it to Europe is, of course, because of these interventions that are being placed in North Africa, in the Sahel, in the Mediterranean. If the drivers of migration are so, let's say, severe and likely to increase with time, if the policy stays the same, what does that mean? That we're going to have more young people leaving their countries in North Africa, West Africa, East Africa, in an attempt to reach Europe and risking their lives or getting stuck along the way. And not only is this putting their human rights in jeopardy, but it's also a shame for the countries they come from in terms of losing their brightest who end up stranded and not really being able to reach their objectives. Instability and high unemployment remain push factors driving immigration to Europe. In response, Europe's policy interventions could become more restrictive. And where those interventions fail, the guardians of Europe's borders could even resort to more sinister methods. Member state of Frontex operation can order either to apprehend or that the vessel, uh, the suspicious uh, boat, could be, um, let's say, uh, invited to change its course. Coast Guard, this is Turkish Coast Guard. You are now pushing back the migrants to Turkish territorial waters. This action is clearly a violation of international laws. Amid these alleged pushbacks, Members of the European Parliament are now calling for the head of the European Border and Coast Guard Agency, also known as Frontex, to resign. Areza Malakuti explains the role of the agency and what kind of pushback tactics it's being accused of. Frontex is the European Union's border agency. And so, you know, while each sovereign country in the world normally has its own border agency and Coast Guard and so forth, because Europe became one block, uh, it created an agency to monitor its external border. And that's what Frontex became. And as the migration through the Mediterranean became more and more important to Europe, Frontex's role also became more and more important. Frontex has been the centre of controversy many times over the last five years, I think, since the crisis. But what's happened more recently is that there have been allegations that the Greek Coast Guard was repelling migrants from Greek waters back to Turkey. Even though the Greek authorities deny that this has occurred, the reason why this is concerning and controversial is because under international law, everybody has the right to claim asylum. And so if a Coast Guard or a country 
stops migrants from being able to reach their country without giving them the opportunity to apply for asylum or asking the people on the boat, does anybody here want to apply for asylum? Because you have the right to come to Greece and do that. Then it amounts to a breach of international law. And so, and the Greek Coast Guard allegedly has not done this. They've just turned them away without checking if anybody is in need of asylum on that boat. And given what we talked about earlier about the uh, majority of individuals moving from Turkey to Greece coming from refugee producing countries, this is quite concerning. And the way Frontex has been implicated into all of this is that. There have been allegations that Frontex witnessed these pushbacks and allowed them to happen. And again, the reason why that is concerning is that if Frontex is the EU's border agency and therefore an institution of the European Union and therefore upholding the values of the European Union, then we have a problem here because essentially it is complicit in denying the human rights of these individuals. That was Arezzo Malakuti, Senior Fellow at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Trends in immigration policy have strongly influenced migration routes and migration flows. But regulating the numbers of migrants coming in is not the only policy objective. Contemporary migration policies also increase the ability of states to control who is allowed to immigrate. In the past, you often had migration policies that would explicitly ban certain nationalities or certain religions from migration. And you don't have that anymore in in current migration policies, apart maybe from Trump's infamous Muslim ban that didn't derive through the courts. But this doesn't mean that nationality doesn't play a role anymore as a selection criteria, even in today's migration policies in Europe. Dr. Katerina Netter, Assistant Professor at the Institute of Political Sciences of Leiden University. What we see is that the class-based selection criteria also allow European states to indirectly select and also therefore discriminate according to nationality in their immigration policy. So by selecting on education and on wealth, basically what, what you create is a migration policy that might give more access to certain upper classes from a select group of African or Asian countries that basically bars everyone else from entering legally. So certain populations are barred from entering Europe easily and legally, and this is achieved through restrictive immigration policies and heavy securitization of migration routes. But to understand what informed these policies in the first place, we need to go back to 2015 and the so-called migration crisis. The media's depiction of migration peddled a series of misperceptions that ultimately led to the public portrayal of certain populations as less desirable. Katerina, do you think the scale of migration seen in 2015 was historically unprecedented, thus warranting the use of the term crisis? It always depends what you take as the reference point, really. It was maybe unprecedented for the European Union in the 21st century. But if we go back a bit more in history, not that long, actually, to migration after the fall of the Soviet Union in the early 90s, entries into the then European Union were equally large. And also, if you look beyond Europe, I mean, the migration of the year 2015 was by no means exceptional. If you look at East Africa, Southeast Asia, 
or the Middle East, where you regularly see migration movements of the scale. So I think what was unprecedented were not so much the numbers, but the political incapacity of the European Union of dealing actually with the people arriving. So it wasn't really a migration crisis, what it really was political crisis. How did these misperceptions affect policymaking? This construction of a crisis narrative and misperceptions that we just talked about of large-scale, uncontrollable uh, migration of poor people, maybe also ethnically or religiously different people to Europe. Well, these constructed narratives have really been damaging for the general conversation about migration in Europe, mainly because discussions and policy choices on migration are now mainly guided by unreasonable fears and unsubstantiated expectations instead of having a calm and fact-based reflection about what Europe actually needs in terms of migration and also what it committed itself to in terms of human rights. So this dynamic has led to a growing gap between, on one hand, discourses around migration, which are increasingly hostile and restrictive, also in in parts of the left political spectrum uh, increasingly. And on the other hand, uh, you have the policies that are actually implemented by European governments, which are not only driven by populist agendas, but also by uh, European countries' economic needs and human rights commitments. But even if these policies were built on unreasonable fears, as you say, they seem to have had the desired effect. Irregular migration across the Mediterranean has dropped significantly in recent years. Well, I think it's true uh, that you point out that irregular arrivals at Mediterranean coast have substantially dropped over the past few years. But I don't think that this drop can be linked to stricter border controls uh, that have been enacted by Europe, really. Of course, they're part, they're part of these dynamics, but they're not the central drivers. I think, first of all, it's important to say that the irregular migration numbers of the past five years are not so much a reduction as they are a return to pre-2015 levels. So it is more that the year 2015 stands out rather than that the last five years would stand out from the broader pattern over the last two decades or so. But I think the second point that's maybe more relevant even is that while we have to to consider that migration trends are always a reflection of both destination and origin country policies, but also of the more general socioeconomic circumstances that drive migration in the first place. And so over the past five years, we've seen that socioeconomic and political situations in countries across Africa and the Middle East have been constantly in flux with periods of hope and and growth oscillating with crises. And if you take, for instance, Tunisia, which which is a country that I know uh, well, then you can actually uh, see that the number of Tunisians who leave irregularly has been relatively low over the entire 2012-2017 period, basically after the, the peak in the revolutionary year 2011. But that over the last two years, irregular migration of Tunisians has been increasing again. And what you see, and this is interesting, I think, is that in contrast to earlier years, you now see more and more university graduates, businessmen, but also public employees leaving Tunisia irregularly. And I think this again reflects the the increasingly limited legal migration channels to Europe. Are these recent policy interventions we're seeing in countries like Libya and Niger effectively changing migration trends in the long term? 
these are really policy interventions that operate at the surface of migration dynamics. They're actually not fundamentally changing migration trends. And I think that what they do instead is having unintended consequences that are basically of two sorts. First of all, they're shifting routes. We have seen that over and over again. And particularly with the new agreement between Italy and Libya, you see that the route through the Canary Islands, so from Mauritania and Morocco towards the Canary Islands in, in the West, has become increasingly attractive again over the past year. But also you, you see increasing departures again from Tunisia, that of Libya, so people shift routes. But uh, the second unintended consequence, which I think we are all aware of, but many people prefer to ignore, is the greater suffering and, and dying of human beings uh, as a result. That was Dr. Katerina Netter, Assistant Professor at the Institute of Political Science of Leiden University. With routes through and from Libya to Europe becoming increasingly challenging to navigate, migrants are turning to Morocco. Thousands of people make it as far as the Spanish enclaves of Soweta or Melilla. Others opt for the Canary Islands as a route to Spain. As GI research shows, Libya's centrality as a departure point has shifted west. Areza Malakuti explains. So in the case of Italy and Spain in recent years, I think we can say that, yes, the increase that we saw in Spain in 2018 and since 2018, there has been a contribution made by the decrease in Italy, that some of the migrants who would have normally traveled along the central Mediterranean route ended up rerouting towards the western Mediterranean route. However, it's not the only reason why we saw an increase in arrivals in Spain. I would say that the real increase in Morocco or the Western Mediterranean route came through the airport at Casablanca. And by that, I mean that in the last few years, Morocco made a political reorientation towards Africa because politically it had been tied more so to Europe and it decided to reorient towards Africa. And in order to do that, there were a few initiatives that the Moroccan government instigated. For example, Royal Air Morocco was expanded. Its flight paths were expanded to include more countries in West Africa. And so it became very easy and very cheap to fly between West African capitals and Morocco. And this was mainly because Morocco wanted to position itself as uh, the middleman between Europe and West Africa in terms of business and trade. There were also a number of visa exemptions that were made for West African nationals. So effectively, it became cheaper to fly into Morocco and easier given the visa exemptions than following land routes with smugglers. And so this meant that if migrants flew into Morocco, instead of traveling by land with smugglers, they were able to cut down their travel time and minimize their exposure to risk. This increased the number of migrants coming into Morocco. Ali Zubaydi is a doctor of public law and a specialist in the smuggling of migrants in Morocco. He explains the current migration trends at play in Morocco. The classic routes to the south of Spain are from Tangier, Asila, Nedor and Hosema. In addition, Migrants' route to Ceta is through Tetuan, and for Melilla or Shafarinas Island, the migration route is through Nador. However, we have seen the emergence of new departure points, such as the coast of El Jadida to Portugal, Agadir and Tantan to reach Canary Island. 
Since 2018, many migrants have moved to the southern regions, especially in Laayoune and Dakhla, to reach Canary Island. The coasts of Mehdiya, Saleh, Laraj, Mule Buselham, El Jadida, Safi have become departure points for a lot of convoys. Helped by smugglers or by themselves, Sub-Saharan and Moroccan migrants also use Medilia and Seita as entry points into Europe. Nonetheless, the jet ski crossing of Nador and Hosema remains exclusive to Moroccan citizens. Ali, who are these smugglers? Is it primarily Moroccan men who are already engaged in other illicit activities? Women are also involved as smugglers and they are members of organized criminal groups. For Moroccan smugglers, they include the following. Former migrants, transnational organized criminal groups, corrupted officials and border community members. Sub-Saharan smugglers are very, also very organized and work in collaboration with the Moroccan smugglers. There's collaboration in all migrant smuggling operations from Morocco to Spain between Sub-Saharan and Moroccans. How much does the journey from Morocco to Spain cost a migrant? The journey costs between 600 to 7,000 euro per migrant. There are many factors for the drastic fluctuation in price. The prices depend on services. The smuggling networks operate as travel agencies. It changes according to the origin and nationality of the migrants, the services on European countries and the point of departure. It also depends on the nature of the journey and the various services offered. It could be by air, then land and by sea, or by land, then by sea only. As such, the smugglers are offering services allowing the illegal crossing of borders to Morocco and then to Spain. Also, they can offer fraudulent documents and passports. For example, nowadays, in Morocco, with 7,000 euro, you can buy a German passport. For smugglers, this document will allow you to travel from Morocco to Turkey, then to the European Union countries. Smugglers are also offering employment contracts for migrants in Spain, France, Germany and even Great Britain. That was Ali Zubaydi, a doctor of public law and specialist in the smuggling of migrants in Morocco. Morocco is a complex migration point. It is a destination country and a transit and departure point for migration. This nuanced status has led to a somewhat contradictory security and policy response. The country has previously been accused of flouting international human rights law in its treatment of migrants, while simultaneously enacting liberal immigration policies. Dr. Katerina Nette explains this seeming contradiction. I don't think that this is contradictory at all. I actually think that the selective liberalizations alongside continued securitization of migration is part of one of the same strategy. And this strategy is mainly guided by Morocco's foreign policy interests. First, I would say that this policy is meant to show to to African neighboring countries that for those migrants who actually follow the rules, Morocco is a welcoming country and an attractive destination. And this is really an important element in Morocco's Africa policy, both economically and politically. Over the past years, Morocco has tried to get closer to uh, to African neighboring countries. So immigration is a key 
component of that. But second of all, this this sort of two-folded policy also showcases to Europe that Morocco is a strong state capable of controlling its borders if its demands are met. And I think this if is important. And these demands are not only development aid, as is often uh, highlighted in debates, but it also involves crucial issues of economic cooperation and the political recognition of Western Sahara as a part of, of Morocco. This is often forgotten in these debates. And lastly, I, I also think that such a policy allows Morocco to play this role as an international leader and mediator between Africa and Europe on the migration question. And as I argue in my research, this really successful instrumentalization of immigration policy allows the Moroccan monarchy to consolidate its legitimacy, both domestically and internationally. So there is this intrinsic link between immigration policy and regime consolidation that is going on in Morocco. As in the case of Libya and Italy, Morocco's cooperation with Spain in countering smuggling networks is not necessarily halting migration. It is, in fact, shifting routes and encouraging adaptation often with harmful consequences. Here's Ali Zubaydi again. The bilateral cooperation between Morocco and Spain allowed the dismantling of several organized criminal groups specialized in migrant smuggling. But the flows are not decreasing. The smugglers are changing the routes and the journeys are becoming even more dangerous. It is very important for Morocco and Spain to work on prevention rather than only focus on securitization. The transnational organized groups will always find alternative ways to cross the borders, even if lives of migrants or authority agents could be in danger. That was Ali Zubaydi, doctor of public law and specialist in the smuggling of migrants in Morocco. Migration routes are intrinsically affected by migration policies. But if those policies are built on false perceptions that engender fear of the other while serving populist political agendas, they will ultimately fail. Movement will continue, underground and unprotected. Those who genuinely need asylum will be lost in a dark world of trafficking or detention or even death. Tracking these shifting routes is indicative of the need to focus on less discriminatory ways to allow regular migration. That's all for this episode of Africa and the Global Illicit Economy. A special thanks to our guests Arezo Malakuti, Dr. Katerina Netta and Ali Zubaydi. If you want to learn more about the shifting migration dynamics discussed in today's episode, visit globalinitiative.net and read Migration Trends Across the Mediterranean. While you're there, have a listen to some of our other podcasts, including last week's feature on the murky ties between political elites and gangs in Kenya. Please take the time to leave a review, subscribe, and share the podcast on social media. It helps us get noticed and improve the show. This is our last episode for 2020. We will be back next year with more insightful shows about organized crime within and between Africa and the rest of the world. We wish you a safe and joyous festive season. Until next time, this podcast was produced by Alexandra Sahai-Williams. I'm Lindim Tongana. Thanks for listening. <laughs>